Well, hey, welcome to the October version of the Watermark Equipping webinar. We appreciate you taking this hour and trusting us with this time. My name is Nathan Wagnon. I'm the Director of Equipping and Apologetics here at Watermark, and my partner in crime in this uh, venue, at least, <laughs> is Nika Spaulding, who's right yeah, across the table. Uh, we me. commit other crimes, too, but we're not going <laughs> to discuss them. So Nika Spaulding, Director of Women's Equipping and Curriculum, and still an OU fan, despite the, the mm, rough start. So. Mm, yeah. Well, hey, y'all had, had a victory last week, We though. did, I mean, we did. Yeah, but it's, it was, like, but it's it like kissing cousins. Nobody really came away with a yeah, victory. Yeah, so. Texas, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's a bad analogy to Fair use. Enough. Oklahoma. <laughs> Fair enough. And then the person who's going to be moderating the questions is? Sylvia Bateman here. Yeah, I also try to keep Nathan and Nika in line. But as mm. you see, it's way too fun to let them do whatever they'd like. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And then today's guest, we're, we really are honored um, to have uh, Dr. Paul Copen. He's the professor and the Pledger Family Chair of Philosophy and Ethics at Palm Beach Atlantic University in uh, balmy Florida, which is over the last couple of weeks hasn't been very, very balmy. But um, but uh, he is also the author of uh, Is God a Moral Monster? Uh, Making Sense of the Old Testament God. He's he's uh, written a, a handful of books um, on this issue. And and so, Dr. Copen, thank you for your time and uh, just for investing uh, in us over this hour. We're, we're, uh, we're glad to have you. Thank you. Great to be on your program. So, hey, let's just let's just jump right into this issue, because um, in asking the question, is God a moral monster? For someone who's not familiar with the biblical text, um, they they may even be like, well, what? God's a moral monster. But um, uh, I remember listening to a sermon one time where a guy was talking about uh, a family that decided they wanted to uh, read the Bible together during their family time. And so they sat down, opened the Bible and, you know, Genesis chapter one, God creates everything and then he creates and it's all good. And there's man and woman and they come together. And then by chapter three, there's sin. And then within the first six chapters, uh, uh, brothers are murdering each other. <laughs> <laughs> the earth is flooded, like God's wiping out people, and it's just like – and I, I remember the, the the little quip by one of the kids asking his dad where he's like, Dad, should we really be reading this? <laughs> you know, there was like, what? And so um, a lot of times it can be confusing for, you know, for Christians who come to the text and they meet up some with some of these difficult issues and just scratch their head. Um, but then also in an increasingly um, – antagonistic culture that's antagonistic to Christianity, uh, this can be a lot of times kind of fodder for skeptics and atheists who would say things like, like Richard Dawkins says in the, God, in the God Delusion, where he said the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, felicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully, right? And uh, I mean, I don't even know what half those words mean. I know, but, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, not painting a good picture, but I think what Dawkins is doing is going throughout the Old Testament and he's cherry picking some of these passages that are, that are hard to understand. And then throwing them together to say, like, look, here's your God, you know. And so as we start to jump into this topic, just recognizing the importance of it from a Christian standpoint to 
to be able to understand uh, what's going on in the Old Testament and who these people are and why these things are happening. So the first question I'll throw at you is real simple. Well, it's a simple question, not a simple answer. But in putting the Old Testament in its context, what role does understanding the background of the story and the, the historical context, the cultural context, what role does that play in, in coming to the Old Testament so that we don't misunderstand because we don't understand the the context and background? Right. Well, I, just if I may back up a little bit to give perspective on Richard Dawkins, who makes this sweeping statement, it sounds like he uh, thinks that the God of the Old Testament is evil, mm-hmm. uh, but yet in his book, River Out of Eden, he says that in a world of selfish genes and electrons, there is no good or evil, mm-hmm. nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And so as the atheist, as the, uh, the quote, secularist steps into this discussion, blasting the God of the Old Testament, there is still a kind of moral presumption here. And the question we have to ask is, on what basis do you even have any sort of moral categories if we are simply the products of these blind, deterministic, valueless, non-conscious, uh, unguided processes. Mm-hmm. Now, we, you know, Richard Dawkins is correct when he says that this there is no good or evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. He's being consistent with his worldview. Right. So when you have the uh, critic like Richard Dawkins jumping in and saying, but look at uh, this God of the Old Testament, well, he's actually contradicting himself mm-hmm. and borrowing actually from a, a theistic worldview in order to launch his criticisms that uh, are filled with you know moral venom and so forth. So I think that is helpful to keep in mind as well, that Richard Dawkins himself is being inconsistent. He has to borrow from outside of his own worldview in order to launch this criticism in the first place. Yeah, and I, and I, would, I would say that for us, um, when we talk about the problem of evil in our, in our apologetics ministry, um, I, I often remind people that, hey, pain and suffering is real, and it is a problem. Like, I'm not saying it's not, but there, even though it's a problem for, for us to, to grapple with, the bigger problem is faced um, with atheists who deny this moral objective standard, where now they're faced with the same suffering and, and evil, and yet they're not able to call it what it is. And so they're left with a, this visceral response that's natural um, to their just human nature, and yet they're not able to ground it in anything. And so while the problems we're going to be talking through you know, um, are difficult, it's more difficult to be on the other side of the aisle um, not being able to ground evil in anything at all. So Exactly. Yeah, so yeah no, talk good, just good about uh, just background and context. Yeah, let me uh, you know say a little bit about that, and and I think that even when it comes to the Old Testament, it's not as though uh, biblical uh, characters like David or the prophets are you know f- you know fully on board with what is going on in God's mind uh, when they David sees Uzzah struck down for touching the ark in Second Samuel six. Uh, he, you know, you know, you're not supposed to touch the ark. You're supposed to carry it in a certain way on poles through the rings and the uh, on the ark. Well, you know, God doesn't rebuke David when he gets angry, but but you know, it, you know, Jeremiah when he says, "You deceived me, and I was deceived." He's telling the Lord this. You know, it's not as though it's just 
uh, everyone goes along with the cosmic authority and no one has any questions or issues or offers challenges. You think of Job and so forth. So I think it's helpful to remind people that, you know, there are some questions that are baffling that come up in the Old Testament and, uh, and God isn't afraid to receive our questions, I think asked in the, in the right, uh, you know, in, in the right spirit. Um, but, but there are, uh, there are questions that do come up. And so as we engage in our churches and our youth groups or even in, in society, we ought to be welcoming these sorts of questions, but it also means being patient about working through some of these issues because as you've indicated, the, the Old Testament world was far different than what we have in our own modern world. And so often we are quick to superimpose our own modern standards and our own moral development upon an ancient world. And, and this simply is a, a, you know, a, a problematic assumption. It's what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Yeah. Uh, and so, so I think it's helpful to ask this question. How would you bring, say, democracy to a place like Saudi Arabia? Uh, what would be required to change a certain mindset? You'd have to think in terms of doing things incrementally. You'd have to think in terms of a long-haul approach rather than thinking that, oh, we can patch this up pretty quickly. We'll just give them some laws, enforce them, and then this will change the mindset. No, this is very, very different. There's a different mindset. Uh, one Old Testament scholar, Bruce Birch, says that these texts are rooted in a cultural context utterly unlike our own, with moral presuppositions and categories that are alien, in some cases repugnant to our own modern sensibilities. And so we ought to kind of let things stand on their own, uh, allow for a kind of suspension of moral judgment, as one thinker has put it, um, to allow the ancient world to express its own priorities. You see, God begins where people are and seeks to move them in a redemptive direction, uh, that not all of God's commands are actually optimal. In fact, one, one scholar says that God gets his hands dirty to a certain point, that he works within a fallen world, though not the original product of his own pure hands. So God is accommodating himself to the reality of the ancient Near East, that God isn't uh, bringing his kingdom into being uh, in one dramatic act. No, it is something that takes a long time. It is something that is gradualistic. Uh, and, and Jesus himself in Matthew 19.8 speaks about the law of Moses uh, as being given, these laws being given not because they're necessarily all perfect or ideal, but because of the hardness mm. of human hearts. Yep. And so when we understand it in that context, we see the, the moral law, as one, one uh, author, N.T. Wright, put it. He says the law of Moses is kind of like a booster rocket, that it has a certain purpose, it has a certain place in the economy of God's unfolding, saving purposes. And then once, those, once that mission is accomplished, once national Israel gives way to the Messiah and the birth of the church, then the law of Moses, which has laws about, uh, you know, clothing, about planting your crops, about punishments, uh, you know, about warfare and so forth, those things fall off because we're no longer dealing with uh, a national uh, people, uh, with, with, uh, with an army, with a king, with, uh, with judges, with, uh, with punishments and so forth. We're dealing with the inter-ethnic people of God scattered throughout the world. And so God points people in a certain direction direction, but, but it, again, it is a very alien world, and there are certain provisional things that are being uh, legislated that, uh, that again, are not 
part of God's permanent purposes. Some people say, well, isn't that inconsistent? Shouldn't God be legislating perfectly consistently? It's, you know, is this, you know, isn't, aren't God's standards changing? And I would say, well, think of it this way. Uh, when I was, you know, I've got six kids, and, and when the kids were little, uh, I would say, kids, all right, you know, hold my hand when we're crossing the street. Well, when they're, you know, teenagers, when they're in, you know, got most of them are in their 20s now. Uh, I don't say, okay, kids, hold my hand when we're crossing the street. Yeah, right. No, the, these, this command was for a certain time, for a certain place, and uh, as things move along, those commands are no longer applicable. In fact, maybe one of these days they'll be saying to me, Dad, hold my <laughs> hand when we're crossing the street. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so again, there is that kind of um, flow, there's that kind of movement, and there are different contexts in which certain laws are applied New new requirements come up, new duties arise that are fitted to a particular context that were not relevant earlier on. Yeah. So I think it's helpful to think along those lines, and in, in some ways a kind of pragmatic uh, understanding. Not as though you know morality is, is is squishy here, but but we because we do recognize from the very beginning the creation of, of God, the way that God has made things from the beginning, male female equality, the equal rights of all people, you know, being made in the image of God and so forth, you know, marriage and so forth being. You know, the way that God has ordained it, uh, you know, these are fundamental things that God keeps on pointing his people back to and reminding them of. So there is the ideal that people can be aware of and, and, and connect up with. Um, but as, as you know, the ancient Near Eastern structures, the fallen structures, are, uh, you know, are, are, are deeply embedded polygamy, patriarchy, uh, warfare, and so forth, God works within those parameters and seeks to move people in a redemptive direction. And, you know, Dr. Copan, one of the things, too, that as you begin to study ancient Near Eastern culture, even New Testament, you know, Greco-Roman culture, what is always uh, interesting to me is the ethic that God does give, though, to his people are all always so much farther along in the society around yeah. them while God is, you know, taking us from Eden back to a restoration of Eden. So from Genesis one and two back to the end of revelation and he's incrementally pushing us forward. He's still pushing his people at a pace much, much more revolutionary beyond the society around them. And so you think about some of the laws in the Old Testament, if you do suspend your modern sensibilities and you think about in terms of an ancient Near Eastern person hearing this law, they're thinking, whoa, this is an extreme ethic yeah. that that nobody else is, is doing. So, so many times we see it as very backwards. And yet in that context, they would have seen it as really pushing society forward. Right. I mean, there is a, for example, a highly, highly democratized understanding of the people of God, um, that all people, for example, are under the same laws. That it's not as though you know kings and priests get a pass. Uh, in fact, they're to be held to a higher standard. Uh, you have, you know, so you have that. You have, you know, say runaway slaves. You know, in the Babylonian code of Hammurabi, you had to return a, a runaway slave if he uh, ran away from his master, as opposed to the biblical ethic that says that if a slave runs away from his master, a foreign slave runs away, that you are to let him settle in any of your cities. And so there was this uh, opportunity that people could find refuge and harbor, be, being harbored within Israel. The alien was supposed to be, uh, was, was to receive special attention, the foreigner, the outsider who came in. Uh, you were to look out for him, just as you would look out for the uh, for the orphan, uh, the widow, and so forth. So, so there was this uh, this ethic that really highlighted you know, caring for the most vulnerable of society. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think too, you, you make a distinction in your book between the the efficiency of God versus the sufficiency of God. 
And and I, I love uh, you know one of the quotes in there. You said a friend of yours said that God is almost always late. <laughs> you know <laughs> that he just doesn't work it at the speed that we want him to. Another way I tell it to people around here is I'm like, hey, God is not in a hurry. He is just not in a hurry. And and uh, I, I love the, this quote from your book where you said the scriptures reveal a God who works through messy, seemingly inefficient processes including human choices and failures to accomplish his redemptive purposes in history, that humans see God's grace, holiness, and love is more of a priority than efficiency is. But I think for us in our 21st century Western democratized, like you said, mindset, like we, we put such a high value on efficiency to say like, well, hey, if this is good, then it should, then it should look like this and it should look like this now. Um, like the, right. our, our instant gratification kind of the way that we're conditioned by our culture to think like that. And yet we come to a text where that is not the case. Um, where, where God, like you said, God is, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's getting his hands dirty. In a in a culture and in a society where that doesn't look anything or, or almost nothing like the one that we live in and and is dealing with people um, where they are. And so um, I think just that understanding, grounding our appreciation for the Old Testament and that understanding is crucial when we come to these texts to understanding what's actually going on. Indeed. Yeah. So Dr. Copen, Dawkins quote, obviously, let's let's just look at maybe his indictment of God here. And so one of the things he says, ethnic cleanser, and I think Nate in the great questions team gets this is to the question, did God really command genocide? And if so, doesn't that not make him a moral monster? And so why don't you go ahead and just speak to that? Sure. Well, there are a number of features here that, you know, is it really a matter of ethnicity? Uh, it's interesting that when you look at the list of peoples, for example, that are highlighted in, uh, you know, when Abraham, for example, is, uh, you know, in Gen Genesis 15, that God is going to um, bring judgment on the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, and so forth. Uh, what, what you, all the ites, yeah. And, but as you read the Old Testament text, you read that Moses, father-in-law, is called the Kenite. Mm -hmm. Caleb is the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. Yeah. Uh, one of David's mighty men was Uriah, the Hittite. And Ahimelech, the Hittite, was a trusted friend of David. Uh, you have Rahab, a Canaanite. Other Canaanites from Shechem in Joshua 8 join themselves to Israel in a covenant renewal ceremony. Uh, you know, we read about uh, how even Ezekiel, uh, you, know, you know, God is speaking to you know, in Ezekiel 16 where it says, you know, God is saying to Israel, your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother a Hittite. So, so again, if it's an indictment, it's an indictment upon Israel's own heritage. Right. Uh, so we need to see this as not something ethnic, but rather we need to see this as moral and spiritual. We have to ask, what kind of people were these? I mean, were these people who just happened to wear tattoos and the Israelites didn't, or they uh, they ate shrimp and pork and the Israelites didn't? Uh, you know, if those are the differences, no big deal. But when it comes to the actual reality, the these ancient peoples of the Canaanites were engaged in what would be considered uh, criminal activity in any civilized society. Uh, you see that you know the you, you look at the gods of the Canaanites, 
uh, and you see the god Baal or Baal raping his sister, you know, Anath, the goddess of war, while she is in the form of a calf. So there's even bestiality thrown in. Uh, you know, you have you know all sorts of sexual relations. You know that Baal has sex with a heifer, 70 times seven and 80 times eight, and she bears a boy. You know, so there's all of this. In the, in the whole pantheon of Canaanite deities, they're engaging in all sorts of horrific things, and so it's not hard to believe that the Canaanites themselves would be engaging in these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So, so you have in, the, in, in various laws, you know, prostitution being permitted uh, in some of these ancient Near Eastern cultures, that if, you know, in a Hittite law, if a father and son sleep with the same female slave or prostitute, it's not an offense. Or a Hittite law, if a man has sexual relations with either a horse or a mule, it's not an offense. Um, and so there was uh, there was something approved of these sorts of things. And so when you look at the bestiality, you look at the incest, you look at the ritual prostitution, you look at the infant sacrifice, these are not light things. These are the sorts of things that are horrific. They're terrible. And so God, God is actually talking about a nation that is morally, uh, or a group of peoples that are morally corrupted. So, so it's not as though these people were just minding their own business, living peaceful, quiet lives. Uh, there, there was corruption there. But notice this, God actually waits over 500 years. He speaks to Abraham in, say, you know, 2000 or, uh, you know, you know, 1900 BC. And then, uh, you know, then in the, you know, the, the 14th century BC, God brings out these people. So there's been 500 or so years of waiting. Uh, before God actually begins to drive them out. Also, we need to keep in mind, so there's patience on the part of God. It's not as though there's some precipitous judgment that that has fallen. If I could, real quickly, yeah. I was going to mention that. So in, in for those of y'all listening, if you have your Bibles, it's Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, the, the uh, kind of occurrence that Paul just talked about, where uh, Yahweh is interacting with, with Abram, later Abraham, and uh, and tells him, he says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. He's talking about the, the promised land, the land where the land that the Canaanites inhabited and the exodus where the Israelites go down into Egypt and are enslaved there. And then the Lord is, is telling Abram, hey, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So there's this really like clear uh, deal where the where like you're talking about uh, the Lord's patience with the Canaanites for them to come to repentance for them to turn to him and yet there there is a time there seems where th- these types of things that you're describing build up to a, a boiling over point where it becomes right. not just the right thing to do it becomes the wrong thing to do if you don't do something you know, it becomes the thing where it's like, if you don't intervene here, then then that's that's wrong. And and just uh, so just making that point about the justice of this, you know, it's funny. Everybody's always talking about, oh, yeah, love and love everybody. And, and it's like, yeah, but there is an aspect of that that um, I mean, very much in the Old Testament, for sure. Righteousness is intricately linked to justice. Like over and over and over, the Lord is crying out for, hey, justice, justice, justice. So I think it's a really important point that you make to say, look, these are not innocent people. Sometimes I describe a guy asked me this one time and I was like, hey, ISIS is pretty horrible, right? They're murdering people, cutting their heads off, torturing them, seemingly indiscriminate. Like they'll just kind of do that with anybody. And, and so I was like, how would you feel if the United States came in? 
and said, hey, we're going to wipe out ISIS. Most people would be like, yeah, you know, when? <laughs> because yeah, that exactly. seems just. And yet when the Israelites are faced with a similar type situation and the Lord is like, hey, wipe out the Canaanites, then that becomes a problem. Right. right yeah. So think, think, um, think rather than kind of peaceful, loving Amish people, uh, yeah. you know, don't think of that in Canaan. Think of Nazis or something, right. you know, think right. of, you know, we're talking about something that is much more uh, terrible and pernicious. So a- absolutely right. Also, I think we, we, as we look at the ancient Near East and, and see what is going on there, we see even in the warfare, you know, we, we'll read the language of utterly destroy, leave alive, nothing that breathes, and so forth. Well, in the ancient Near East, when you use that sort of language, it was actually highly exaggerated. It was hyperbolized. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, you have, you know, when you, even when you narrowly won a victory, and maybe even sometimes you lost, you could you know, a lot of these kings, you know, Babylon or Egypt and so forth, would talk about utterly destroying their enemies. Uh, so, so there was, you know, you know, for example, Ramses II in uh, the 13th century BC fought against Syria at Kadesh, and it really wasn't a decisive victory at all. It was kind of a, a you know, a, a stalemate basically. But you know, it says of him that he took millions of foreigners. Ramses did that. He regarded them as chaff. He slew the entire force as well as all the chiefs of all the countries that had come with him. His majesty slaughtered and slew them in their places, and his majesty was alone, none other with him. Uh, and again, it wasn't even a decisive victory. It was kind of a stalemate. So, uh, so but, but again, that is, uh, you know, Ramses, who is king of Egypt, who is, you know, saying these things, or King Misha um, in the, you know, in, in around 830 or 840 BC says, Israel has utterly perished for always. Mm. But in actual fact, this was a premature judgment by a hundred years. It was only, it, it was in 722 that Assyria came in and actually uh, dismantled the, the Israelites. So you have that language of exaggeration. In fact, as you read the biblical text, you will see language that has utter destruction, there are no survivors, and then you keep reading, and you say, wait wait a minute, I thought all those people were, were destroyed, but look, here they are again, what has happened? Mm-hmm. Uh, so so you'll, you'll see this uh, pretty, pretty commonly in, the, in Joshua, as well as Judges. I'll just give you an example. Uh, in Judges 1.8, it says, the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. So here, you know, utterly, you know, utterly destroyed, set the city on fire. And then in the same chapter, Judges 1.21, uh, it says, but the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with them in Jerusalem yeah. to this day. Yeah. So, uh, hey, I thought they were utterly destroyed, struck with the edge of the sword, set the city on fire. What's going on? So, so again, this is the sort of thing you'll have. You know, Saul utterly destroyed the Amalekites. The narrator says that the Amalekites were utterly destroyed. And, but yet at the end of the same book in 1 Samuel, David is fighting against the Amalekites. The Amalekites keep on showing up uh, in Scripture, even at the time of Hezekiah, many, many you know, hundreds of years later. So this is the sort of thing that we ought to see as uh, kind of a – there is a combination of hyperbole. Uh, you know, which allows for ample survivors. In fact, God says in Jeremiah 25, uh, 9 through 11, he says that he is going to, using the same word, utterly destroy, God is going to utterly destroy Judah and leave its cities in everlasting desolation. Well, you get to the end of the book, and well, yes, Judah is, it's been 
undermined, it's been disabled religiously, politically, economically, uh, socially, and so forth. But again, there are plenty of people there. The nation of Judah goes, goes on along. They're in exile, and then they come back, etc. So it's not as though there's been utter you know, annihilation or something. So we need to understand this word as having a, something, it, there's something going on here. Uh, furthermore, this is complicated by the fact that God tells the people, first of all, to drive them out. Mm. He's not, you know, so if you're driving out the Canaanites, you're not killing them. Uh, you know, so I think you can see it in kind of a sec- in, in two phases. The first phase is you know, drive them out, disable. Uh, if, you, if you can't clear the land, then those who are leaving themselves in harm's way are, you know, again, basically standing there in defiance of the God who has made himself very clearly known. Uh, in fact, the Canaanites knew very well who this God of Israel was. I mean, Rahab in Joshua 2 says, you know, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. You know, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear. Well, again, that was 40 years before that happened, yet the people still knew who this God was. There was a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night over the camp of the Israelites while they're in the wilderness. That is pretty startling. The, you know, so the, you know, in Joshua 5, all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan, all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over and their hearts melted. Again, the same sort of thing comes up with the Gibeonites in Joshua 9. And even when the Israelites fight against uh, the Philistines in 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines say, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. So so the people know who this God is. There is fair warning, if you will. Yeah, totally. I think that a lot of times the, the mental picture that people have when this is brought up, especially if they haven't critically thought about it before and it's brought up in a conversation by someone, then a lot of times the mental picture is kind of this immediate scorched earth, burn everything to the ground, kill everybody thing. And I think when you come to the text, if you're thinking about it and paying attention to all the stuff you just mentioned, then we're painted with a pretty different picture than that. So help us understand like Based on the text, what would this have looked like, and how long would it have taken? Well, this is a process. A lot of people think that this is a sudden military blitzkrieg where utter annihilation takes place. No, this is a gradual coming into the land, uh, and and it is done with the process of disabling raids. Uh, One Egyptologist, Kenneth Kitchen, uh, talks about, he basically looks at the warfare methods of the the Israelites uh, as they come into Canaan. And what is significant, for example, uh, after the Battle of Gibeon, he says, we see the Hebrews advancing upon six towns in order, attacking and capturing them, killing their local kings and, uh, and such inhabitants that had not gotten clear, and moving on, not holding on to those places. Twice over, it is clearly stated that their strike force returned to base camp at Gilgal. So there is no sweeping takeover and occupation of this region at this point. There was no total destruction of the towns attacked. It was a disa- these were disabling raids, he calls them, rather than simply annihilation. Uh, that they basically incapacitated them and moved on. And, and these, you know, these cities were in the main military citadels rather than places where inhabitants were anyway. Uh, so, so again, 
that's not a major point, but I think it's, it's significant that uh, that here you have the people who are, you know, we, we read over and over again that the Israelites did not drive out the Canaanites completely in Joshua 17. Or in Judges 3, it says the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Um, you know, and, and even in Judges 10, you get that far and it's you read about how the Israelites are living in the land of the Amorites. You know, and so these are you know, basically there's ongoing. These people are still there, uh, even during David's time. It talks about the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites that are still in existence, even during King Solomon's reign. Talks about the Canaanites who lived in the city. Uh, you know, the, all, for all the people who are left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites. This is First Kings nine with Solomon, who are not of the sons of Israel, etc. These are you know, these are people who are still hanging around. Right. So. Uh, so we're we're seeing one hyperbolic language. Secondly, we're seeing a gradualistic process. It takes you know two, three hundred years before Yahweh becomes the dominant uh, name, the national deity uh, in Israel. Right. Uh, and you and you see, for example, that you know as one one Old Testament scholar, Ian Proven, says, he says there are clearly many Canaanites still living in the land in the aftermath of Joshua's victories, who are not ultimately even expelled from the land, much less killed. But yet we're told in that same book of Joshua that Joshua did all that Moses commanded. Yeah. Moses said, utterly destroy, leave alive nothing that breathes, and so forth. Well, if Joshua was doing all that Moses commanded, then then maybe we should understand this more in a hyperbolic sense rather than a uh, you know some sort of a, a, a literal sense. Yeah. We need to remember, too, that God doesn't desire to you know, utterly destroy. If there is a repentant spirit, God is willing to show uh, graciousness and so forth. But when people sink to rock bottom, morally speaking, then uh, there is less likelihood that they're going to be open to that. But you do see the, even the, like the Gibeonites, they're paying more attention to God than the Israelites are. Or the Shechemites at the end of Joshua chapter 8, they enter into a covenant renewal ceremony, these strangers, while Joshua is reading the law to them. So so you see that they're, you know, of course, Rahab is there, Joshua chapter 2. So there's a lot more that is going on here, and I think we have to be careful about uh, drawing certain lines with with such meticulous precision because there's kind of overlapping language. And if you take all of it literally, it's going to be contradictory, even just within a verse or two of each other. Yeah, so we have to be very careful. Just to summarize, I, I love what you're saying here. It sounds like, you know, in God's interest in this was more about destroying religion than it was about destroying people. And when we take the hyperbolic language literally, we tend to think, gosh, these people are getting destroyed. And what, what instead I think God's trying to communicate is we're systematically taking out a bad religious system that led to death and despair anyways while he's incrementally pushing in the, the Israelite uh, Judaism ethic at that time. Just for the sake of time, you know, obviously one of the issues that America is dealing with with regard to race relations is many times people look at the scriptures and say, well, how can you be a believer when you think that slavery was right or slavery was okay? And so why don't we transition from genocide to this topic of slavery? It's unfortunate that our modern translations use the term slave or slavery. It's, it's very misleading, unfortunately, because what what is conjured up in our minds is not some ancient Near Eastern understanding of servitude in Israel. Uh, what comes to mind is modern slavery under colonialism. We think of the Civil War, we think of uh, even you know Jim Crow, you know, these separate but equal laws and so forth, and the mistreatment of blacks uh, in our midst. Well, it's ironically the King James Version uses the term slave only once in the Old Testament, uh, you know, but yet in the NIV, for example, the New International Version, you know, you know from 1984. 
the term slave, the translation for this word is used 104 times and slavery 17 times. The word actually is connected to the term for work and also service, but, but it's, you know, it, it, it's, you're working for someone in this relationship. So the term eved and the, the verb, you know, that for ser- servant or avad to work, uh, is, is actually reflecting a kind of, it's, it's a neutral term and it simply reflects a dependency relationship. It's a worker. It's not intrinsically negative. For example, Moses and Joshua are called servant of the Lord, Eved Adonai. Uh, even in Exodus, when we read about the Israelites who are Pharaoh's servants, we're also told that the Egyptians are Pharaoh's servants or slaves, if you want. But notice this, that God wants Pharaoh to let the people go so that they may, and here's the word, serve me in the wilderness. You see, Israel is going from one state of servitude or dependence to another. One is negative, the other is positive, but it's not as though that word itself, the word you know, eved or avad, the, the noun servant or the, the verb to serve or to work, has some sort of intrinsically negative connotation. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this is, is something we ought to understand. Uh, that it can actually be a, a high honor to be, the, say, the servant of the Lord. Uh, and, and so that's, that's the first step in, in, in understanding it. What does the word actually mean? It's not intrinsically uh, negative. And some of our modern translations, unfortunately, use the term slavery and slave so freely. And we, I think without a, an ear toward what our culture is thinking about, what this connotes. Yeah. So we ought to use terms that are much more toned down because, uh, you know, I was talking with my dean, who's a New Testament scholar, and he, he was talking about how in, you know, in Matthew 24 and, and elsewhere where you talk about two women grinding in the field. Well, we, you know, we're not from an agricultural context, and so a lot of people think about lewd dancing uh, in that regard and so you know even even translation issues that you know when you think about what sparks what is sparked in the mind of the reader in a certain context well maybe we need to adjust what we're actually translating so you know in a way that it doesn't distract from what the actual message is from what the reality is right. so so that's something to that we ought to be considering uh, also, we, we need to remember, too, that there were remarkable provisions for servants in Israel. Yeah. That for one thing, you, if you were injured, uh, you know, based, by the way, for the Israelite, it was generally a contractual sort of thing where you worked like an indentured servant for you know, six years and the seventh year you would go free. Uh, and so for those who are in this sort of a situation, if you were injured by the person for whom you were working, you, then, there, then you would be let go. You would be freed from your obligation. In fact, if you were harmed, if you, were, you'd be, if you would be killed by him, you know, by the, the one for whom you're working, you could be, that person could be executed, mm-hmm. um, you know, as Exodus 21 indicates. Also, if foreigners could come to Israel and find refuge rather than having to be sent, to sent back to their masters, how, you know, how much more should there be freedom and care and concern for those who are foreigners in the land of Israel? And we've already talked about that. Uh, also, the, you know, rather than trying to institutionalize servanthood in Israel, provisions were given for those, even foreigners, who, who, uh, you know, who would be able to glean uh, from trees that hadn't been fully plucked or crops that had 
hadn't been fully harvested, uh, that you would have you know, an, an, an injunction to care for the stranger, the orphan, the widow in your, in, in your midst. You weren't allowed to have interest uh, loans for those who are in Israel. You were to lend freely to the poor. There are all sorts of things to keep people out of servitude. Really, if you were impoverished, this would, would lead to, uh, to servitude uh, in Israel. Now, there's one text, and I'll just mention this. This is one that people will routinely point out. Um, and this is where in, uh, in Leviticus 25, here it's in the context of the year of Jubilee. In Leviticus 25, 45 to 46, we're told that aliens and sojourners can be acquired and that they can work for is- the Israelites permanently. Now, some people think, look, this is they're being treated as furniture. Well, the term acquired can be more of a formal transaction, uh, a, a legal contract and so forth, kind of like we would have if a person uh, joins a sports team and you know he's a, he's a free agent, but then the, the owner of the team buys that person. Uh, that person is now, you know, he, he's, he's, uh, he's no longer a free agent, that he, is, you know, that he has an owner. Well, we don't think of that person as having lost dignity and worth or something like that because of this... Uh, contractual relationship. So this formal relationship doesn't mean that this person is diminished in his humanity. And and furthermore, you have a problem of aliens who come into Israel. Their only recourse is to attach themselves to Israelite households, sometimes for generations, permanently, because you cannot acquire land in Israel as a foreigner. That was just the reality. Uh, Only Israelites could have land within Israel. But notice this, just after this, and this is a lot of critics ignore this, Leviticus 25, 47, the very next verse says this about the alien and the sojourner, the same one used, same terms used in, uh, in verses 45 and 46. It says this, if the alien or sojourner becomes a person of sufficient means, then he could potentially acquire an Israelite as a servant. Hmm. So notice this, that, it, you know, that the alien's position wasn't necessarily permanent. Hmm. Just as the Israelites could have aliens working in their households uh, and, and working for them as servants, so the foreigner could potentially have an Israelite working for him in his household. Yeah. So it's very interesting how all of this works. But So it's good to point out these sorts of uh, nuances. But as the Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright said, the slave in the Old Testament was given unheard of and legal rights uh, unheard of in contemporary societies yeah. at that time. Yeah, that's the, that's the point that I think just to drive home is, uh, again, a lot of times people think about uh, you know, enslavement in, in, in terms of like Annabellum South, and yet what we see here, I think, is is God it, through the law making provisions for people to live like we started off the webinar and saying, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna meet you where you are." You know, like this is a this is a reality of the world that you live in, and so instead of trying to institutionalize it and make make it more of a a, a sense of like human trafficking. Instead, I'm going to provide provision for these people in the midst of a society that is broken, you know. And and so I would I would also point people, you know, since I deal with this quite a bit, as people ask the question and great questions, I would point our listeners to First Timothy chapter one verses eight through eleven, where it where Paul clearly condemns that the type of slavery that people are thinking of to be chattel slavery or antebellum slavery, um, the type of Jim Crow laws that we a lot of times think about where he says the sexually immoral, those practicing homosexuality, slave traders, that's that term where people are trafficking human beings, 
liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, that, that those people are lawbreakers. And so um, there is a clear, um, I think we see a picture in the Old Testament of God making provision for people to really either integrate into the Israelites or, as you said, um, as they gain means to come out of a life of servanthood. And yet, even in the midst of that, maintain their dignity as people made in the image of God. Sylvia, did you? Yeah, we had a couple great questions come in. Um, I'll pose one now, and then maybe at the end, one more relates to our culture. But the one that we can pose now is either addressing now or directing towards a resource about um, you guys discussing what it means to love your enemies in light of Matthew 5, 44 versus our Christian role in destroying evil like ISIS, kind of like we touched on before. So either addressing that now or giving resources later for that tension between loving enemies and, and destroying evil. Excellent question. Um, I would I would say that in my book, Did God Really Command Genocide? Um, my co-author and I go extend the discussion of warfare, uh, but also deal with issues of just war and pacifism, loving your enemies, the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New, uh, and so forth. But I think it's interesting that in the ancient, uh, you know, in ancient Israel, what you have going on here is, you know, not as it's not as though Jesus somehow came up with the idea of uh, of loving your enemies. A lot of people think, oh yeah, Jesus loved his, you know, he said love your enemies. In fact, he showed his love for his enemies by dying on the cross, and again, he illustrated that. But again, this was not a concept that Jesus came up with. This is actually rooted in the Old Testament, in the Law of Moses, for example, in Exodus 23. It says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If one who hates you, lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. And Paul quotes this passage in Romans chapter 12. He says, you know, according to Proverbs 25, he says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Well, again, loving your enemy was something that was to take place in the Old Testament as well as in the New. The Old Testament can, you know, is able to differentiate between the personal relationship that you have and showing kindness to your enemy, but also bringing justice to those who are oppressors and, and fighting, say, in a, in, in a warfare situation, uh, maybe to protect your nation from invasion or whatever. So there is there no contradiction seen. And in, in, in the same way, just as in Romans 12, we have this command to show kindness to your enemy, we also see that the government also in chapter 13 of Romans has a God-given task to bring judgment, punishment, you know, the images of the sword, a, of a lethal weapon, to, to bring justice to those who are, who are perpetrators of evil. So the question is then, how can I really, you know, how can I maybe be a government official, like a police officer or something like that, or even a soldier in the military? How can I really love my enemy if I, there I am trying to kill him? Well, the, the goal is not, I'm trying to kill this person. Remember, Jesus condemned murder that springs from a hateful heart. You know, in a just, not motivated by hate, you're motivated by justice, yep. that innocent people are being harmed and you're trying to step in to protect them. That is what is, you know, we see neighbor love exhibited toward those who are innocent and defenseless. But also there's a, a neighbor love that is shown toward those who are actually the perpetrators. Yep. Uh, again, the goal is, you know, it's not as though it comes from hatred that you're trying to stop this person, but as a last resort, you may have to do so. And in doing so, what you're what you you actually preventing this person from bringing further damage to his own soul by murdering more people, uh, by harming more people. Yeah. So there is a place to stop this person, to use force against this person. You see, when Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek, 
that's not an act of violence. That is actually a, a, an insult. That Jesus is saying, if you receive an insult, a slap on the face is highly insulting, mm -hmm. then be willing to receive another insult. Remember, Jesus himself did act very forcefully when he drove money changers out of the temple and so forth. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he did speak about those who were, you know, you know, those who led the little ones astray, his disciples astray. In Matthew 18, he says, if someone leads one of these little ones astray, it'd be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So Jesus had very strong words for those who are uh, spiritually uh, misleading others. Again, so the New Testament is opposed to uh, just war or the use of force to bring punishment. In fact, when Paul's life is under threat by a mob, in Acts chapter 23, his nephew informs him about this, and Paul tells his nephew to tell the commanding officer what he just heard. And so Paul gets Roman military protection, armed guards, to take him out of Jerusalem to Caesarea. And this is exactly what Paul expects a Roman, you know, the Roman government to do, to protect innocent civilians from those who are under threat by you know these by criminals those by the mob by those who would seek to take innocent human life so if some of these people in the mob had been you know harmed if their lives had been taken in the process you know paul would have understood that this is just what a government's supposed to do this question is uh, to has a couple of different facets to it most of the time when i hear people ask you know how do you love someone and yet i don't know how they phrased it um Fight like evil. Fight evil. I think a lot of times, especially given our cultural climate, this whole idea of like love is this carte blanche, like you should just let people do whatever they want kind of mentality. So to bring it to spiritualize it or even to bring it into like a civil uh, discourse, not necessarily military or, or uh, acts of violence, but to bring it down to Hey, someone says, hey, I'm, I'm living my life this way and you shouldn't speak against that or in a in a in a, uh, a verbal kind of way attack me. You should just love me. I think there's that facet of it where I think the answer to that is, yes, we should love. But love, as First Corinthians tells us, is always rejoicing with the truth. And so where somewhere where love encounters something that's not true or does not consistent with the truth then love all of a sudden um, looks looks like something that's uncomfortable because it's confrontational. And it may not feel loving anymore to that person, but it is love um, because ultimately what's happening is we're reaching down as a, as a surgeon would to get a tumor out. The most loving thing that that surgeon can do is cut that person. Well, that person's like, ow, that hurts. Quit cutting me. It's like, dude, the mm -hmm. most loving thing I can do right now is to treat this in this way. But, and then I would say on the second front – um, just to bring my personal experience to it, um, as, as some of you know, I, I served in the military. I was, in, I was an infantry officer in, in, uh, in Afghanistan and saw some traumatic things. But I remember um, we were in a fight one day, and after the fight was over, you always do kind of uh, what they call BDA or battle damage assessment, um, where you just kind of see like, okay, what just happened, <laughs> you know, from a physical standpoint. And I remember seeing this guy um, who had um, whose life was over. And uh, um, I remember feeling in my heart, the very first thing that came into my head was not like, yeah, ha, 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 you're, you know, you're dead. I remember thinking in my, in my head, being grieved by that. And at the same time thinking the wages of sin is death. This man had made so many choices in a certain direction that ultimately it, it, he chose to end his life and not not a government that was out to specifically get that guy. And so there's a culpability of people who are on the receiving end of just violence 
that um, that that needs to be appreciated when we when we come to that subject. Just for the sake of time and because we are a church, so we can't not mention Jesus. I think implicit in this conversation is understanding that so many times what people are asking about God, I think, is they're saying, hey, we see this as I'm briefly looking at the God of the Old Testament. He seems to be angry, vengeful, judgmental. And then I see Jesus, who seems to be meek and mild. And in that question seems to be, hey, are they? Are these two different gods, which we would say is heresy? No, the, the, within the Trinity, they are both fully God. And so why don't you guys just speak to that of how does the Bible present two different gods? Can we just clear that up? Because I think that's what what is ultimately we need to understand is that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, as Colossians 1 tells us, as John 1, as Hebrews 1 tells us. So whatever we see in Jesus should be a reflection of how we should see God. And so when we see God as angry and mean and a moral monster, maybe that should give us pause to say, maybe I'm not fully understanding this story then. And you have two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, let's move expeditiously. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Jesus, as, as I said, did not come up with love your enemies. Um, that was something that was in the Old Testament. But by contrast, you also see Jesus affirming, for example, that the law of Moses did command capital punishment in certain instances, like in Matthew 15:4, He who speaks evil of his father or mother is to be put to death. Also, in a number of passages, Matthew 10, Matthew 11, Matthew 24, Jesus acknowledges God's judgments in ancient history of Sodom, Gomorrah, Tyre, Sidon, uh, Noah's flood, and so forth. Uh, we also see Jesus pronouncing woes on stumbling blocks, false teachers, the wicked cities of his day, basically saying that you too are going to be judged like those ancient cities were, you know, in this case, in AD 70 with the Roman army. Yep. Jesus drives up money changers from the temple. Uh, you know, Jesus himself is one who uh, you know, says that he, there's this false prophetess Jezebel in, in Revelation 2, that he's going to cast her on a bed of sickness uh, and, and his followers, are, he's, he's going to basically judge them by pestilence and so forth. G this is Jesus speaking and these are temporal judgments speaking in history. So Jesus is one who is kind of like Aslan. He, just like the God of the Old Testament, is good, but he is not safe. And that's why Paul says in Romans 11.22, behold the kindness and the severity of God. Yeah. You see, in the Old Testament, we have both love and wrath. In the New Testament, we have love intensified, especially the cross of Jesus Christ. But we also see wrath intensified, that if we turn away from the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, then we are even more culpable than they were in the Old Testament. So we see, rather than love being ex you know, accelerated or heightened and wrath diminished, we see both of them intensified. Yeah, yeah and I would say, to just tie that up and, and close out the webinar, yeah, the, the place where we see the wrath of God um, in its fullness and the love of God in its fullness is at the cross, where the one who had no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so I would just encourage you guys, as, as we read the Old Testament, just like the early church did, we have to read the Old Testament through the lens of the cross and the empty tomb. And, and uh, through the man, the one man, Jesus Christ, who is uh, the fullness of deity in bodily form. Man, Paul, thank you for your time. It's always uh, refreshing to hear someone who has thought so thoroughly um, about these things and, and uh, to be able to help uh, equip us. So um, we're really grateful for your ministry and definitely want to point our listeners to the book. Obviously, is God a Moral Monster? And then the other one you mentioned, Did God Really Command Genocide? Um, both those you can get on Amazon. But anyway, join us next month. I think November the 11th uh, is our next one. And uh, thanks again for joining our webinar. And